Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for this time that we have together. Uh, not to just go through the motions of worship, not to just do this because it's Sunday morning and that's what we do on Sunday morning, but because we truly want to worship you. We truly want you to know how much we love you. We truly want to align our lives with your word and live in a way that pleases you and most importantly shows the world around us that you are alive and real and in our lives and that they can know you. Help us to share your word with those around us. Thank you for the power of your word. Going to see an example of it today in our passage from Acts 9. Thank you for giving us your word that teaches us, trains us, corrects us, puts us on the right path. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 9 is one of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture. It's the conversion of Saul, who we later know as what? What name? Paul. And uh, it's the story of his conversion. And while it's one of the most familiar passages, it's almost uh, always one of the most misunderstood passages, I think. There's all kinds of psychologizing about what happened to Saul on the road to Damascus that we're going to study today in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. There are those who say he was stirred inside and he was wrestling with uh, so many things and wrestling with his need of Jesus Christ and he had this inner turmoil and he had this dark night of the soul that was happening to him. And he finally gave in and trusted Jesus. Well, I think, honestly, that's a little overwrought. I think that people have gone too far in seeing him in that way. I do think there's a question that he's struggling with. It's a question I struggled with when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that Saul's conversion is typical. Saul's conversion is unique. There are a lot of things about his conversion that that we can take as illustrative of our conversion of when we came to faith in Jesus Christ. But there was a question that the folks who ultimately were responsible for my becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, there's a question they asked that stopped me. You know, I could argue, well, I belong to the one true church I could argue scripture back and forth with them, but they said, they asked me this question if we're wrong, what have we lost? But if you're wrong, what have you lost? That question stopped me cold. If we're wrong, what have we lost? But if you're wrong, what have you lost? And for all of the books they gave me to read that I enjoyed thoroughly, that showed me there were people who knew Christ, and because they did, I couldn't because of the difference in the, their lives and mine. 
the scripture I began to read, but this question stopped me. If we're wrong, what have we lost? But if you're wrong, what have you lost? You see, everything the church taught, everything the church did, everything the church stood for, even at this early stage, turned Paul's theology upside down. It turned everything that Paul believed upside down. Remember, we learned a couple of weeks ago, Israel's history is one of failure to perceive God's work, rejection of God's truth, rejection of God's servant, servants, a tendency to be bound to men's traditions. Well, what is Saul doing right now as he seeks to stamp out the church, as he persecutes the church and tries to stamp out belief in Jesus Christ, the resurrected one? I don't want to over-psychologize what happened to Saul in Acts chapter 9, but I believe that a similar question could have been stirring in him. Could we possibly be wrong? Could what I heard out of the mouth of Stephen be right? Could what I hear out of the mouths of those I go from city to city to arrest and to bring them back to Jerusalem and put them on trial and some even to death. Could it be that they are right? So while I don't want to over-psychologize what happened to Paul, I think there's a good chance that that's what he was dealing with. Could Stephen... Could this church be right? Now, who is Paul? Let's get a little background to him. We've been introduced to him a couple times already in the book of Acts, but uh, Paul doesn't give us much of the background. Of, uh, excuse me, uh, Luke doesn't give us much of the background of Paul's life. So it's necessary for us to look other places in Scripture to understand all about his life. He is the writer of 13 epistles. By the way, Hebrews is not one of them. We don't know who the writer of Hebrews is, though many speculate that it was Paul. But he wrote 13 epistles, not including Hebrews. He was 24 to 40 years old at the time of his conversion, at the time of Acts chapter 9. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous for the law. He was a Roman citizen by birth, which was an extremely valuable thing in that day to be a Roman citizen. Many could buy Roman citizenship, but Paul was a Roman citizen by birth. And it was very valuable even as he went on his missionary journeys. He had Jewish, Greek, and Roman background. That made him the perfect person to reach out to those cultures. He was the perfect person that God had chosen to take forth his word and to build his church. He was a native of Tarsus. And one writer said this about him. He is introduced to us as a violent, active, resourceful persecutor of the young community, the young church. Well, let's look at Acts chapter 9. 
starting in verse 1. Uh, by the way, it outlines this way, basically a broad outline. There is the introduction in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, the confrontation with Jesus Christ in verses nine, 3 through 9, and the commissioning of Paul in verses 10 through 19. So that's what we're going to see as we go through here. The introduction in verses 1 and 2, the confrontation in verses 3 to 9, and the commission in verses 10 to 19. We read this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. This is the first, Acts chapter 9 is the first of three accounts of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9 is Luke's account of Paul's conversion. Uh, Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26 are both first-person accounts of Paul's conversion by his own words. God is preparing and has been preparing Paul to take the gospel to the Gentile world. Now that won't happen until we get to Acts chapter 11. We won't see Paul engaged in that ministry till Acts chapter 11. A lot of things have to happen in the meantime. Paul has to spend quite a few years in Arabia as God trains him and teaches him and prepares him for what he has for him. But Paul, beginning in Acts chapter 11, verses 25 to 26, will take the gospel to the Gentile world. Saul has ever already been introduced to us in Acts chapter 7 and verse 58, where Luke tells us that they laid those, those who uh, stoned Stephen to death laid their clothes at the feet of Saul. We're told in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 that Saul was giving approval to Stephen's death. He just wasn't an innocent bystander to all that was going in on. He, it just wasn't that they said, oh, there's a nice guy. Will you hold my cloak, please, while I kill this man? That's not the case. He was in active, an active agreement and approval of what was happening. Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, Paul begins to destroy the church. Now, as I said, Saul, or later Paul, was the pers perfect person for God to choose for this ministry. He was acquainted with uh, Greek, Roman, and Jewish culture. He was a Roman citizen. He was trained in theology under Gamaliel, who was one of the outstanding honored rabbis of the day. And more importantly, he was zealous, theologically brilliant, and he was a leader Luke tells us that Saul was still breathing out. He continued his persecution of the church. He kept looking for new battlefields, new conquests. The Sanhedrin had jurisdiction over Jews scattered throughout the Roman world. Therefore, Paul could travel from city to city. Paul could leave Jerusalem and arrest believers in synagogues in other parts of the world and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial, try to get them to blaspheme God. 
which to him meant that they put their faith in Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the one risen from the dead, and so that he could put them to death, both men and women. That's how murderous he was. That explains the ferocity of his attacks. Religious fuel, uh, religious zeal rather, fueled his actions. Acts chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us that Paul persecuted them to their deaths. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 11, it tells us that he tried to force them to blaspheme. Well, Paul got authority to extradite, extradite believers to Jerusalem. We read in verse 2 that he asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way. Now, interestingly, that's the description of the church that's used several times in the book of Acts. Before they were called Christians, before those who are in the church were called Christians, they were called followers of the way. We see this in the book of Acts in chapter uh, 9. We see it in chapter 19, verses 9 and verse 23, chapter 22, verse 4, chapter 24, verses 14 and, 20, and 22 are several places where Christianity, the church, is called the way. Now, what was the reason for that? It infers, it has the idea of several things. It's the way of salvation. It's the way of salvation, the way to God, the way to be right with God. It's the true way to God. Uh, it's the way of faith. Um, where did they get the idea of the way? Probably they got it from Jesus' words themselves, where Jesus called himself, what? The way, the truth, and the life. So they were called followers of the way. Now that's kind of the introduction to what's happening. Damascus was about 150 miles or so from Jerusalem, and Paul is on his way, and he is going to look for those who believe in Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one whom these believers are saying is alive from the dead. Well, starting in verse 3 through verse 9, we see Paul's confrontation with Jesus Christ. What is going on in Paul's heart? Again, I think that... Uh, Dr. Stanley Toussaint catches the, the sense of what's going on in Paul's heart. I don't think it's the deep night of the soul, but I do think that he is realizing that if Christianity is right, then Judaism is wrong. Dr. Toussaint put it this way, if the doctrine propagated by Stephen was correct, then the law was in jeopardy. If the doctrine pro propagated by Stephen was correct, then the law was in jeopardy. So Saul, ze zealous as he was, went on persecuting the church. Well, in verse, verses 3 through 
9, Paul meets the one he's truly persecuting. In verses 3 to 9, Paul meets the one that he is truly persecuting. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now we read over those words so many times, they seem to almost lose meaning to us. Can you imagine you are on your way to Damascus? You the, the one thing that is motivating and driving your life at this point is to wipe out the followers of Jesus Christ, to wipe out the followers of the ones, the, the followers who claim that Jesus Christ is alive from the dead, and suddenly you're on the road to arrest them, and suddenly light from heaven flashes. He falls to the ground and hears a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Uh, so much here in this confrontation. First of all, the light from heaven implies that he saw Jesus Christ and he saw the glory of Jesus Christ, which was veiled on earth and was revealed briefly at what time? Where was Jesus' light? Revealed briefly in the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus' light was allowed to shine at the transfiguration. It was revealed there. Other than that, his glory was veiled on earth. By the way, if you want to read about the transfiguration, Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9, each record the transfiguration. When Jesus... Shekinah glory shone forth. So it's probably the glory of Christ that he's seen. He heard the voice of Jesus. Now, interestingly, Larry Richard shares with us some background here that I haven't read in many places as I've prepared for this passage of Scripture. A voice from heaven to the rabbis was considered God's voice. According to the rabbis, a voice from heaven was considered God's voice, not an angel's voice, not a created being's voice, but God's voice. To Paul, a noted rabbi, a noted teacher of the Old Testament, to Paul, if this if Richards is right, to Paul, a voice from heaven would not be an angel, would not be a created being, but rather would be God's voice. Man, if you thought there was inner turmoil before, how about now? How about now? Saul Saul, he hears the voice, why do you persecute me? That shows us the union of Christ with his church. To persecute Christ's church is to persecute Jesus himself. To persecute Christ's church 
is to persecute Jesus himself. In verse 5, Paul asks, Who are you, Lord? He still didn't recognize that it was Jesus. Who are you, Lord? Now, the word translated Lord, the Greek word that's translated Lord here, is sometimes used to mean sir, master, that kind of thing. It's not always used of deity, but we believe that here Paul clearly means deity. Paul clearly means who are you, Lord, in the sense of deity. With so much supernatural happening, with the glory of Jesus Christ, with the voice to Paul, he recognizes that he's in the presence of a supernatural being. He recognizes he's in the presence, the divine presence here. This isn't just some created being. This isn't just some angel that he's hearing. It's God himself. It's God himself. Jesus identifies himself, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, if you look with me at Acts chapter chapter 26, we see a fuller version of what Jesus said to him. So if you turn back to Acts 26 and verses 15 to 18, we'll see the full version of what Paul says was said to him in Acts 26, starting at verse 15. Then... I ask, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What Jesus said was a basic outline of Paul's message. What Jesus said to Paul was a basic outline of the very thing he would teach, the very thing that he would do, reaching out to people to talk about, teach them about Jesus Christ, the one who died for their sins, the one who was resurrected to heaven, alive from the dead, the one in whom they must place their faith. Not the law, but the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Paul answers. Now, by the way, some of your versions, particularly the King James Version at this point, has the phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And if you have an NIV, you'll notice it's not there. That sentence is not there. Now, interestingly enough, it is found in Acts 26.14. It is found in Acts 26.14. But it's not found here in the earliest and best manuscripts available to us. Chris told you last week about the process of textual criticism. It's an interesting process to study. In fact, I believe it's a crucial process to study. So you might understand that this Bible that you have in your hands is totally trustworthy and totally reliable. 
And sometimes Christians get upset because they say, well, it was in my old Bible, but it's not in my new Bible. The reason for that is we're finding manuscripts all the time. And manuscripts can be set into time periods and families. And what they have discovered is that the earlier manuscripts are usually the more reliable manuscripts because the scribes had a tendency to add things on so that later manuscripts have something like it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Some scribe, knowing that was later in the book of Acts, thought, well, it's got to be here too. Thank God for people. I couldn't do it. It is such tedious work. Uh, the New Testament, for, for instance, was written with no word divisions, no capitals, no punctuation. Now there's a lot of fun when you translate. Think of, think of it. Think of trying to translate English, although most of us could do a good job of it. We're familiar enough with the, with the words and, and syntax, but no punctuation, no capitals, all uppercase letters on seals. Thank God there are scholars, right? Thank God there are scholars who will give their lives to studying the manuscripts and comparing the manuscripts. So I, I, I hope, I, I, you know, we could do a whole course, and Chris has threatened to do a course in the, offer a course, uh, make you go to a course in textual criticism. No. Uh, I think that would be a great thing. Uh, I think it would be a great, a great course. Uh, what I want is, I've only got, I'm taking a few minutes here to talk about this, because I want you to know that your Bible's reliable. I want you to know that what you have in your hand is, is virtually the Word of God. We don't have the autographs. We don't have the original manuscripts. But we have so many thousands of manuscripts, both in Hebrew and Greek, that we can be confident that we have virtually what was in the autographs. And, and so I just want you to know, when you, when you get to uh, a sentence like, a section like this where something's not there, you say, oh, they're messing with the Word of God. No, they've discovered that it, in all probability, doesn't fit here and was added later. So what does that mean? A goad was a long, pointed, sharp stick that was used to direct an oxen. Now, I think that what that is saying is that God was after Saul and he was goading him using a sharp pointed stick to bring Saul to the place where he would seek and understand and embrace the truth. For God had set him apart to do a mighty work. God had set him apart to do a mighty work. Well, verse 6 I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. 
Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. He was to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. By the way, that's a street that's still, it's called something else, but it's still there in Damascus, the same street. He was to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, street where Ananias would be sent to him and tell him what he would be doing. To tell him what he would be doing. Short In the short form, he would be proclaiming the gospel. He would be proclaiming the gospel and God also tells him through Ananias that he would suffer because of his ministry and because of pro- proclaiming the gospel. Now, I wonder how many of us, when we share our faith in Jesus Christ with the unbelievers around us, tell us, and by the way, you'll probably suffer. Hands? We usually don't want to talk about that. Oh, your life will be wonderful. Everything will be great. I tell you what, becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, and I was 25 years old when I did, so I know a bit of life before I came to Christ as Savior. I know a bit of what life is like. And what becoming a believer in Jesus Christ did for me is gave me true purpose in my life. I knew why I was living. I knew why I was living. By the way, it also came with some suffering. It also came with some suffering. But we don't normally share that. We, we kind of gild the lily, right, when we share faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we want to say to them, by the way, if you come to faith in Christ, you are really going to have some terrible persecution in your life. So really be careful before you make this decision. No, I'm not saying that. But Paul was warned here that he would not only proclaim the gospel, but he would suffer because of it. And so I think we want to be honest with those that we share our faith with. There's something else here that William Barclay points out, and I really like what he said here. Let me share that. He said, There is all of Christianity in what the risen Christ said to Paul. Go into the city, you will be told what to do. Up to this moment, Paul had been doing what he liked, what he thought best, what his will dictated. From this time forward, he would be told what to do. The Christian is a man or woman who has ceased to do what they want to do and who has begun to do what Christ wants them to do. It can't be said better. It can't be said better. Paul illustrates that the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ is the moment we should also understand that our life has been changed in dramatic and deep ways. And how that came to me is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Not long after I became a believer in Jesus Christ, not long after I put my faith in Jesus Christ, 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 rattled over and over and over and over and over in my thinking. You are no longer your own. You're bought with a price. You are no longer your own. You're bought with a price. Paul understood that instantaneously from the moment he came to faith. It took me a little while to come to it. You see, I liked my life. I liked my life. I liked the career I was in. I would happily have done that for the rest of my life. At least at that point, that's what I thought. But then I became a believer in Jesus Christ. Had my own Damascus road experience, experience, which was, believe me, a whole lot less dramatic than Paul's. No angels, no voices, no light. Just shaving cream on my face. Because after several years of searching all of this out, for whatever reason, God chose the moment, and I, I didn't have a goatee or any, just... No facial hair in those days. I actually even had hair in my head in those days. It was amazing. I'd like to show you pictures, so if you have time after the service. No, no. Uh, but I was shaving, and I had started, so I had shave cream on my face. I had finished about half when... I thought, I have got to do business with God right this moment. I knew I needed him in my life, and he wasn't there. And so I knelt down in front of that sink. I said, Lord, I don't understand all this but I know you're not in my life and I know I need you and I stood up again no voices no light just the confidence that I had done business with God and I was a new person And then 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you're bought with a price, you're no longer your own. That wasn't just true for me, folks, that's true for you. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you're bought with a price and you're no longer your own. This was the day Paul stopped doing the things he wanted to do and started doing the things that God wanted him to do. Has that moment come for you yet? Has that moment come for you yet? Paraphrasing Barclay, the Christian is a person who ceased to do what he or she wants to do and has begun to do what Christ wants them to do. Well, verse 7, the men traveling with Saul 
stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anything. Saul got up from the ground when he opened his eyes, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. There are those who believe, by the way, Paul's companions heard the sound. They didn't understand the words. Paul is the only one who understood the words. They just heard a sound. That's what the text tells us. They heard the sound, but didn't understand what was saying. Now, many connect Paul's uh, eye problem. Remember, he says, I believe it's the uh, end of the book of Galatians, he talks about his eye problem that was distasteful for people to look at. Many people believe that this may have been the time when he had that eye disease start, or it was a result of the glory of Jesus Christ uh, shining uh, on him. Either way, he was led by the hand into Damascus. As another writer said, his self-confident independence is replaced with childlike dependence. God's grace had been displayed in his life in a powerful way. And it's often, another writer said, displayed in people's lives by powerful acts and apparent catastrophes. Powerful acts and apparent catastrophes. For three days he was blind and he didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias and the Lord called to him in a vision. Now, whenever I read this, I kind of try to visualize this, that I'm Ananias. You ever do stuff like that? Or you're not crazy enough to do that? Uh, you should do it. It's, it, really, it really gets you into the text. Uh, you don't have to be a great actor like Scott here. <laughs> if you've ever seen him on stage, he's fantastic. Uh, but uh, you put yourself into the character of the Bible and you think about Ananias. Now, what do you know about Saul? Nothing, apparently, according to this group. <laughs> what do you know about Saul? Don't be afraid. Come on, we're almost done. He was zealous. He was zealous. He was out to kill people for believing in Jesus Christ. God comes to Ananias and says, I have a job for you. And I'm not taking no for an answer. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying in a vision. He has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And then Ananias did what you and I always do in prayer. We instruct God. God, you must not understand. You must not know this. I, I want to bring you up to date. Give you the memo. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Whew. Glad you know that now. Now, Lord, did you change your mind? But the Lord said to Ananias, verse 15, 
Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias has also come to the place in his life where he understands it's not his will that matters, but God's will. And what do we read in verse 17? Ananias went. He went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. And I have a feeling he would love to have placed his hands around Saul's neck. You killed some of my friends. <laughs> you know. um, placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained all his strength. By the way, let me put a little uh, word in here for baptism. We're going to do it in three weeks, right, Steve? Three weeks. If you've never been baptized, baptism doesn't contribute to your salvation, and it doesn't save you. But what it is, is it's a step of obedience. And baptism simply means I'm identifying with Jesus Christ. It's your public way to tell everybody, I have put my faith in Jesus Christ, and that's what has saved me. If you'd like to be one of them, see one of the pastors. Well, so much more that could be said. I've got to wrap things up. Let me, let me kind of talk about the fact that Saul's conversion is surely unique it's surely unique but i think it has com common elements with our salvation and not everybody will go through all these steps but i i see five things here number one there's the encounter with jesus it always starts with an encounter with jesus now we should not expect to encounter Jesus personally. If you do, you're in a lot of trouble because you're probably being influenced by Satan's crowd. We should not expect to see Jesus personally today. Why is that? Because the Word of God is complete now. The Word of God is complete now. And now we see Jesus, we encounter Jesus through His Word. That's where we encounter Jesus. Now, by the way, that's not just my crazy thinking or my narrow theology. That's what Jesus said in Luke 16. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. When the rich man said, please send somebody back from the dead to tell my family not to come to this place. Jesus didn't say, oh, right, no problem. We'll have a... A vision. Jesus said, look, they have Moses and the prophets. That is the Old Testament. Let them hear Moses and the prophets. You and I have a completed Bible today, Old and New Testament, and we encounter Jesus today in his word. By the way, there's a third way we encounter Jesus, and that's through his people when people, when you interact, when I interact with people, they are encountering Jesus because he lives in me and he lives in you. 
and they are having an encounter with Jesus Christ. The second thing, so first is an encounter with Jesus. Second is a challenge, a challenge. There's an unspoken challenge. When you encounter Jesus, you have to ask yourself, what is in my life that needs to change? What, what about my thinking about Jesus Christ is wrong? I haven't thought of him as God incarnate. I haven't thought of him as God resurrected from the dead. I haven't understood that. Not that I need to change something in my life and improve myself so God will accept me. God won't accept me no matter how much I improve. Because all of my righteousness are as filthy rags to God. There's nothing I can do to make myself acceptable to Him. But what is there in my thinking that needs to change? I have trusted in myself instead of in Jesus. I have trusted in my good works instead of trusting in the grace of God. Number three, third commonality with Paul is a misunderstanding by the people around us. If you came to Jesus Christ, especially came as an adult, if you came as a child, it's probably not as prominent, but if you came as an adult, you had relationships that were broken because of it. You had people who said, I don't want to be in your life anymore. I don't even understand who you are anymore. And you know what you should say to them? Thank you. Thank you. means the Word of God's doing its job in my life. People will misunderstand. The fourth thing that's common, I think, with what happened to Paul is you and I will be called to serve God in some way. Now, there are many ways to serve God, and I don't have time to get into any of them, but we will be called to serve God. And finally, the fifth thing, the fifth commonality is we'll be called into a new family. Ananias called Saul what? Brother. How do you call a person who's breathing out murderous threats against your fellow believers, how do you call them brothers? Because instantaneously, when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, we become part of a new family. I hope you've had your own Damascus Road experience. If you haven't trusted Christ, you can see one of us, one of the staff, one of the elders. We would love to help you with that. So let's bow together in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for choosing Paul. Thank you for calling him as you did. Help people around us to see you in us. That they might know they have had an encounter with you. Might need, see their need to change their thinking about you. And put their faith and trust in you alone. In Jesus' name I pray.